The Energy Talk. Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk podcast. This is episode two of our series on renewables in Africa. My name is Olubumi Olajide, and I'm so glad to introduce our guest for this week because today we speak with Dr. Weber Bohr, who is the CEO of Olon, an impact investing firm based in Lagos, Nigeria. Dr. Bohr is someone that is extremely important to the renewable energy ecosystem. His reach and impact has extended to the entire continent of Africa and it's really such a privilege to speak with him and you would see throughout this episode we have such a great honest conversation about what it's like investing in renewable energy businesses and empowering founders to take their businesses to the next level and really opening new doors of investments and opportunities for not just the companies that all on investing but also the people that those businesses impact apologies during some parts of the interview I end up laughing uh, a bit too loudly I guess I was just enjoying the conversation a bit too much in those places but we're going to be learning quite a lot about the mission of All On what it's like investing in renewable energy business what the potential for growth is in the sector and what it's like being an entrepreneur in this space the challenges they face and how young people maybe you the listeners can get involved in the energy space whether that is working for a renewable energy company or starting your own business and I think this is just a fantastic conversation and also Dr. Bo was actually very important in making this series possible because he introduced me to a lot of the other entrepreneurs and founders that we're going to be interviewing in the next few weeks and I really appreciate him for that. So this has been a rather long intro. I'm very excited to share this and I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Weba Boer, Dr. Weba Boer. I'm the CEO of All On. I was born and raised in northern Nigeria and my first sort of connection to energy was that I grew up actually in rural Taraba State, what is now Taraba State, off-grid. And so as a little kid, actually, we genuinely didn't have any power. So I, I, I've actually lived this and then actually eventually moved to Joss. And we know the story of what the Nigerian power sector has been like in the last 30 to 40 years. So this is not something that I came into later in life to learn about. It's the power problems in Nigeria is something that I grew up with. The other thing that I grew up with was I, my parents were Dutch missionaries in northern Nigeria. And my father's work was very much focused on the integration of church and society. And so it was looking at all of these issues, like what can the church do more to just make life better for for Nigerians? And so it was a lot of focus on rural development, poverty alleviation, that kind of thing. So again, you know, household conversations as a child was always about impact, improving the life of the average Nigerian, how that can be done and so on. And so it, it's it's really something that has gone through, through my career, right? I, I actually did a PhD. My PhD is actually in history, so it has nothing to do with energy. I then had a series of jobs. All of them were focused on impact in one way or the other, whether it was, you know, leading a development project in in Nouakchott, Mauritania, working with the Rockefeller Foundation in Nairobi, Kenya, or coming back to Nigeria and, and setting up the Tony Olumulu Foundation and so on. It's always been about impact and how you make life better for the average African. So I didn't actually have any prior experience in the energy sector, but what Shell brought me into All On to run All On was because of that experience in in impact and creating impact and sort of the blend between philanthropy and commercial approaches to, to, to creating impact and alleviating poverty. And that's really what got me into this. It was more the the approach that I was familiar with and that I, I was known for and less about the expertise and power. When I did get the, the, the offer to do this, however, you know, to me, it was like a no brainer because, okay, what is the fundamental foundational development problem in Nigeria. You know, a lot of people are, there's a lot of effort, let's say, to improve education, to improve healthcare, to improve food security, to improve competitiveness, on and on and on and on. 
But you can't improve any of those in a lasting way until you fix power first. And so for me, this was a great opportunity to say, okay, let's try and fix the power problem. It's an immense. Nigeria has the, has the largest off-grid population in the world. So this is not something you can fix overnight. But the reality is, is every investment we make, every bit of work that we do immediately impacts people's socioeconomic status, right? As soon as you now have access to clean, reliable, affordable energy, you know, you can work longer, your children can study at home, you can hire more people in your business, you know, on and on and on and on. And so it was that that attracted me less that I'm an expert in power or energy, but more that, you know, I have a, a way of, of approaching these things that blend sort of commercial approaches, philanthropic approaches, but also this, this idea that the impact is actually felt quite immediately. I would say that your diversified experience prior to Olon was was one of the key um, elements that drove the way you shaped it. But before we get into that, so what is Olon and how was it founded? So I think it's important for the audience to understand that context where we go on to the rest of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. So Olon is is founded and funded by Shell, and and it really came out of conversations, you know, quite quite some years ago. I think starting as early as 2014, long before I got here in, into Olon, and it was basically a period when Shell was was divesting from a lot of their onshore assets in Nigeria. And it was it was something they said, okay, look, we've been in Nigeria for 60 years, we're divesting, but we want to make sure that Nigeria and Nigerians know that we are still very much committed to this country and that we want to do even more than what we already do to give back. And so all on, the concept of all on was, you know, let's find something major that we can fund and provide funding for that kind of shows this commitment and this desire to give back to Nigeria. And so it wasn't necessarily going to be energy access. I mean, there was, a, it could have been almost any impact sector and eventually, you know, a process of research and so on was gone through and, and energy access was selected. It wasn't necessarily going to be this sort of impact investing approach. I mean, there were options all the way from it being sort of a grant, a traditional grant maker, you know, was an option, that kind of thing. And even whether it was just going to be called, you know, Shell something, or if it was going to have a separate brand identity and all that, all of those were conversations that happened over quite a long period of time. And then finally, the decision made was, okay, look, that they needed somebody from outside Shell to come in and run it. And so that's that's then when I came in and, and, and was brought in to run it so that I would come in with a a bit of a different mindset. I mean, you know, Shell is an oil and gas company. Majority of the people there are engineers. It's just massive. And and so for them to like start thinking about, okay, how do you invest in, in small deals? How do you build an, an ecosystem from scratch? How do you help n- nurture a new industry? It, it's just very different from what the typical Shell skill set was, which is why I came in. But that's really the origin. It was really a, a something they wanted to do to give back to Nigeria. And the way that we're structured, we're, we are a Nigerian company limited by guarantee. And that's a very interesting structure that we have in Nigeria. That's a quasi-charity, quasi-charitable structure. And what it means is that anyone who puts money into All On, so all of the money that Shell has put into All On, they cannot get anything back. Neither Shell nor the directors on our, on the all on board, none, no one can benefit from it. There's no dividends, nothing. So even if one of our investments, you know, makes a billion dollars, by Nigerian law, that billion dollars stays within all on to be invested into the social cause that we are focused on. And so, you know, it really genuinely is that the money that Shell has provided for us is not that one day we have to give it all back. It's, it's basically to create impact and, and contribute to Nigeria's development in perpetuity. So, so I think even the way it was structured, I think shows what the, 
what the vision and commitment was from the beginning. So when it comes to the involvement of Shell, I think from a Nigerian perspective, it's easy to understand. But from an outside perspective, let's say for most of the energy and climate organizations from North America or Europe, the involvement of oil and gas companies has been largely been shown as they can only either divest from their current oil and gas assets mm-hmm. Or they can uh, completely um, just transition the business all the way to, to renewables. But this is a very different approach, as you mentioned, because I can imagine that Shell was a bit cautious about how to enter the space and how to do it intelligently. Mm-hmm. So how, how has this background really led into how Allon has developed as, as its own entity? As I had said, Allon, you know, could have actually focused on any sector, but eventually mm-hmm. they focus on, on, on the energy access space in Nigeria. And when Allon was set up, the whole kind of energy transition conversation in Shell itself, was only just beginning. So when we were set up, we were actually quite peripheral to what Shell in Nigeria or even Shell globally was looking at. And that actually shows how fast um, the energy transition conversation has actually emerged and, and developed, right? Because mm-hmm. now, four years later, you know, all of Shell is, is already, you know, the, the strategy of all of Shell is that by 2050, it's going to be a zero emissions company. It's, it's no longer to be seen as an oil and gas company, it's an energy company. Shell is looking at, you know, and making big investments in renewables. Hydrogen is a big bet for Shell. So, so all on went from, you know, being this sort of peripheral, you know, impact investor that was there for kind of goodwill in Nigeria to now suddenly what all on is doing is very much at the center of Shell's emerging core business and is playing a big role in, in leading the energy transition for Shell itself in Nigeria. And so, you know, for example, our office is the first Shell office in Nigeria that is completely on solar, right? And now we've done it, and now other elements of Shell is going to be on solar. Shell's new office building that's going to be built in Lagos is mandated that it has to be powered with renewable energy. This is something that even two, three years ago, you would never have imagined, right? And so so this, the energy transition and, and, and this kind of, not just pressure, the external pressure, but also just the realization that you know, we need to invest in the future and we need to have a cleaner um, environment. We need to have a cleaner world. And that Shell as an energy company that traditionally focused on dirty fuels needs to also lead that transition. And I think they're now doing it very much from the front. And I'm very proud that, you know, in all on, we're now very front and center in what, what Shell is doing both in Nigeria and globally. That's actually excellent to hear. And let's go to the second basket, which is of in- impact investing. So how do you define the problem that Olon is trying to solve? I think we should start there. How do we define the problem? Okay, well, I mean, so, so in this particular case, we're a very focused impact investing fund. You know, you, you have a number of impact investing funds that may look across, you know, sort of the general impact sectors, which is agriculture, education, healthcare, you know, energy access, et cetera. We are only focused on energy access. And so, so the problem that we're trying to solve, or let me say we're trying to help solve, because the energy access gap in Nigeria is so big and so formidable, the, 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 the cost to fix Nigeria's power problem today is about $200 billion. Right. So it's not something we can do alone. So let me not say we're trying to fix it. We're trying to contribute to making it better. And so the problem that we're trying to make better is the lack of energy access by low income Nigerians. 80 million Nigerians are off the grid completely and another 40 million at least have less than four hours of power a day, which means essentially the grid is not useful for them. Because if you only have four hours of power a day on average and you don't know when you're getting that power, it's essentially useless. And so what we're trying to do is provide, through commercial approaches, provide products and services that low-income communities in Nigeria and small businesses with, with a slant towards the Niger Delta can now have not only access to these to these products, but can afford them and can pay for them. And then the resulting sort of socioeconomic impact that that makes on their on their daily lives. 
And something really powerful that I think with Olin's approach is how you prioritize investing in uh, people and founders that, that actually go about to make those changes and build businesses and products and companies that really address those things. So how did you decide on, on that framework? Because I think now it's a point where things are a bit more, you have templates for things to address. I, I'm, I'm sure it's not just um, copy and paste, but how did you arrive at that framework and how did this element of investing in the right people really shape Olin's identity? Yeah, I mean, look, I, th- I think as an as an investor, you're not in the end actually investing in a business. You're investing in people, right? And and you know, there's a lot of energy access companies in other parts of Africa that are founded by non-indigenous founders, right? And in Nigeria, what I think is very different and what is very exciting is that the majority of the companies that are driving this energy transition in Nigeria are indigenous founders who have lived the problem and have innovated an approach to solving the a commercial approach to solving the problem based on that real experience not just based on some sort of general idea of energy access and and that is what i think is most exciting here that you know our portfolio of 31 businesses i believe it's around 25 of those are are indigenous founded and so on and and that's actually unusual in in africa for for an investment company and it just shows that in nigeria there's this you know we have we have endless socioeconomic problems in Nigeria, but we also have endless entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial spirit. And the young Nigerians are out there saying, "Look, I'm not going to just sit back and 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 watch my country, you know, have this embarrassing power problem. I'm going to actually figure out a way how to solve it and address it. But I'm also going to make money for me and my investors doing it. And you know, we keep seeing you know slight innovations here and there, whether on how the project is being executed or how you know collections are being made or how distribution channels are being built, how payments are being made. You know, so every every year we kind of see slightly more sophisticated and new new approaches to how to create the products that the ecosystem needs to address this problem at scale. And uh, how does all on measure impact? Because you mentioned that the priority isn't necessarily getting a return. So for an impact investing firm, how do you measure the impact that you're having in the community and in the founders and the companies that you're putting money into? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously a financial return is still an important metric and, and impact investing only works when the companies that you invest in are also economically viable, right? Mm-hmm. And too often in impact sectors, that part of it is, is kind of forgotten a bit and, and oversubsidized. And then when the subsidies go, the, the economic viability is also gone and then, and then the whole sector can collapse. So, so it's, it, to be very clear, you know, to be an impact investor, it's both a financial return and a social impact return that you are intentionally seeking. And so the financial return is still an important metric. We are blessed because of the fact that our investor does not require a return and in fact legally cannot get a return. So that means, you know, if I'm if I'm charging an interest rate or seeking a, a you know a, a return on my equity capital, I don't have to add a couple of percentage points because I need to now pay shell back, right? And so that actually mm-hmm. allows us to be quite a bit below market and still you know, return the capital and still even build the fund. And so we have financial return expectations that are more, much lower than a typical fund would have. And so we can actually do a deal where the, it's a, you know, five to 7% interest rate or a 9%, you know, equity return expectation. And, and then that way we still are pushing the company to have that kind of commercial viability that is really important for them to scale, but we're not doing it in a way that actually almost strangles the company and makes it unable for them to service those those debts or, or to, you know, actually grow at the rate needed to satisfy the expectations of the equity investment. So that's on the financial side. On the social impact side, so our primary measure of impact is connections made for low-income households or SMEs. So if I do a deal and my investor is, sorry, my investee is, 
you know, they just put three megawatts of solar on a big uh, industrial plant. That's great, but that actually means nothing to me. And that's not what I'm looking for. That's not the impact we're seeking. Our impact is low-income households and small businesses getting connected to clean, affordable power and reliable power. And so that's our first metric. The number one metric is the connections that, that are made. Then there's other metrics like, okay, how much additional power? Again, because of the type of power that we're providing and the the beneficiaries, you know, each unit of power may be quite low. It could be 50 watts, 80 watts, you know, it's not megawatts at a time. But but it's still important for us to, to kind of measure how many megawatts overall are we are we contributing. And then, you know, there's secondary um, impact measurements like jobs created, and that can be direct jobs in, in both the, the energy companies that we've invested in, but also there's there's jobs created by, okay, let's say we, we, we power a marketplace. And now that the owners of the shops in that marketplace now have power, and so they can actually stay open after dark, and they can then hire more people to run the shop. You know, so all of those indirect jobs are also there, and that's actually a a much a much bigger number. And then the whole ecosystem of you know you have you know sales people, you have people who do the maintenance, and they may not actually be full time employees of the companies you've invested in, but they're out there and they're getting income and they have jobs based on kind of servicing the the needs of the customers. So so that that's also an important element of it. Another important element for us is, is specifically around women entrepreneurs and the number of women-owned or managed companies that we've invested in. It's not actually something that our board or there's no, there's no policy document that All On has that says prioritize women in your investment decisions. And that's something that we've decided on our own as a management team. And so now from our 31 investees, nine of them are either women founded and owned or the CEO is a woman. And, and you know, it's about one third. So it's far better than the typical portfolio that you would see but not good enough and 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 we're we're pushing towards that it has to be at least at least half the companies should be should be woman owned or operated and then you know i mean th- those are the those are kind of the main impact measurements you know and, and then over time we'll we'll probably get a bit more sophisticated and measure okay what was the income improvement on households that had now ha- now have access to these connections you know and in terms of the the impact how many women are actually getting power versus Man, you know, on and on. So it can go on and on. But again, the primary metric is impact of impact is connections for low income households and small businesses. And uh, you've referred to the portfolio of about 31 companies. And I'm just curious, do you have any stories to share about the founders that you invested in the past or the business you invested in the past that have really strengthened your commitment towards Olin's mission and really made you think, okay, we are we are on the right track and we're doing something yeah. that's making a real difference in the world? I'm just curious about that. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, a portfolio of 31 companies means you have 31 stories, right? Every single one of those deals, even the small, you know, angel deals, which are basically $100,000 of blended capital uh, that we do in partnership with USADF. You know, every single one of those deals is an intense process where you are basically guiding a, a CEO or a founder and his team or her team through a very difficult due diligence process that in and of itself, even before you've deployed the capital, you've already strengthened the company in terms of governance, in terms of strategy, in terms of you know the financial future of that company, their ability to scale, their ability to deliver. I mean, that's even before the, the check the, the the check has been signed, right? After you've now made the investment, it's it's a bit like a marriage. There's the dating period is before, and everything is perfect, and everyone is fantastic. And then <laughs> the day after the investment, you're sitting in your first your first board meeting, and you're like, what? the hell this is not what i thought you know and, and and it's just the reality it's just the reality because it's it's kind of a courtship right and and then you you roll up your sleeves and you say okay look this is a company with a great story but they still need a lot of help and we need to be here to help them and so you know sometimes it's our the all on cfo you know almost becomes like the the shadow cfo of the company and really helps them 
you know, works with the finance team to really upgrade their, their, their financial systems and, and controls and all that. Often, you know, I spend lots of time with the CEOs, you know, just counseling them. Sometimes it's praising them. Hey, great job. This is awesome. I love what you did. Other times it's like, guys, come on, what's going on here? Like, you know, I'm out there fighting for you, but you actually haven't delivered for me yet. And at some point you're going to make me an, a liar because I've said you can, can deliver and you haven't. So let's get it done. Let's move on. You know, and so sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it's being a cheerleader. Sometimes it's basically just hearing them out, right? And saying, okay, because every day is a problem. They lose, you know, staff get poached or customers aren't paying or equipment hasn't come or the container is, is, you know, stuck at the port and customs is being irrational on and on and on and on. And, and, and so we have that across 30 companies and, and you have to treat everyone specially and all that. So it's, it's a great, it's been a great experience. And, and, you know, like I said, there's some amazing entrepreneurs out there that are, are making this happen. And I'm, I'm confident that two to three of them, at least of the 30 are going to become Nigeria's first power billionaires. So take a look at our portfolio and, and get to know those guys. <laughs> Cause I think some of them are going to become, you know, and, and everyone has a great story. Some of them, you know, there's Sose Energy, for example, that, that actually just got a big grant from USTDA yesterday. And Habiba Ali, she's the CEO. And basically her interest in starting an energy company was because her mother was a, a food vendor, a street, street side food vendor who through the, the, you know, the cooking and all that of the food, you know, got respiratory issues and so on. And, and others in her family had that. And she said, look, I need to find a way to prevent others from having to go through this. And so she started with clean cooking then went into carbon credits and then now does, you know, solar home systems and mini grids. And, and there's so many stories like that. There's a company called Haven Hill. We haven't invested in them, but they, they, just, they just got a $4 million deal from Chapel Hill Denim. You know, great, great Naira debt, fantastic deal. And that one, you know, the CEO, Shegun, his reason was that as a child, a friend of his died when a generator blew up, you know, and, and, mm. and then he said, this is too traumatic and we can't let this happen. And then he, he, he studied solar and figured out how to make it work. And so if you get stories like that again and again, that it's, it's very personal for people. You know, like I said, I grew up off grid, literally everyone in Nigeria has that. And so when people are building companies in this space, it's usually based on real life lived experience. Well, we were speaking briefly before we started recording, but this is just what, what I really love about this space and what has really pushed me to keep the podcast going. And I think a big part of why the podcast has found an audience is because the energy space and people who are making a difference in the space, they have really personal stories and it's very impact driven. Most of them have such strong motivations behind what they do. And it's honestly really beautiful to, mm-hmm. to hear stories like that. And uh, also it's, it's a credit to the great work that all and other organizations are doing in Nigeria and in Africa. But also, this also puts you in a very unique situation because you're seeing a lot of companies in different growth stages, and I'm sure a lot of them have a lot of the same problems. So what are the common challenges that the companies tend to face? And what are the ones that are most difficult for them to overcome usually? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and this is typical of, of early stage companies in a new industry anywhere in the world. It's not unique to Nigeria. I think it's, it's basically the, the kind of governance and structure of the company. You know, even if you are a one person company, you've just started you know, make sure your registration is done correctly. Make sure you have proper governance. Make sure you have company bank accounts that are separate from your individual accounts. I mean, these are all simple things, but almost nobody does them, right? And what happens is if you don't start the right way, you know, you operate like that sort of informally ad hoc. Two years later, you're trying to raise capital. And then the investors are like, I, I, I don't even understand the business because, you know, which one is your money? Which one is the business's money? You know, who is this guy that is the or this person who's the director, where is your, where did your money actually come from? You know, what is your revenue actually? Are you actually making profit? I can't tell. 
you know, so you got to just, you got to be really structured and organized right from the beginning. And a typical entrepreneur, you know, they're typical entrepreneurs visionary. They're about let's grow, let's build. And, and they usually don't have that temperament that I'm, I'm going to be that structured. And so, you know, one of the things we always, uh, I always say is, okay, you got to find the right person. You, yes, you can be the spokesperson, the visionary, but you're going to need somebody behind the scenes who actually gets it done. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you need to bring that person on board very early and make them part of part of the journey. So I think that's that's one of them. I mean, the second one is, you know, access to capital. And obviously without capital, you can't grow. And, and there's a bit of a mismatch right now in that there is actually a ton of capital out there looking for deals in this space. But it's e- either that the capital is too big. So it's like they, they're looking for a five, ten million dollar deal, 15 million dollar deal in a sector that doesn't really have that yet. Right. And so then you know, then investors are saying, okay, well, let me try a $2 million deal. And then they end up investing at a company at a stage that isn't really the kind of stage they're prepared to support, right? On the other hand, you know, the commercial banks in Nigeria, ultimately, until they start funding this space, you know, real growth long-term is, is going to be difficult because there's a finite number of investors like us. And ultimately, you know, sectors grow based on access to sort of never-ending commercial bank finance and, and those kinds of relationships. The problem is, is that most banks in Nigeria were severely burned during the power privatization, you know, and, and everything that happened. And there's so much bad debt and, and so on in that. And they categorize off-grid energy or renewable energy in the same bucket, even though in many ways, you know, it's a completely different industry. And, and I argue that a lot of these off-grid companies are the product they provide is power, but they're actually more like fintech companies or they're like consumer finance companies. They're, you know, what do you call almost like mobile, more like mobile companies than like a typical power company. But, but in the banks, it's just, they're thrown into the same bucket and then it's, it's like, oh, it's too risky. We can't do it. And so, so we really need to pull them in. But at the same time, we have to say banks in any economy don't usually invest in companies at an early stage in an unknown industry. So it goes both ways. So the entrepreneurs have to build the credibility and the banks have to build sort of a, a trust factor in, in the sector. So, so there, you know, there's the large pools of capital, there's the commercial finance that's not coming in, but then there's also, you know, it just isn't that much kind of early stage capital either. We're the only ones, all in is the only one that does that on a, on a sort of sustained basis in Nigeria. And we can invest in everybody and, yeah. and, and all that. And so, you know, we do find that, okay, as we do more and more investments, you know, others, you know, so like I said, Chapel Hill recently did a deal. They haven't done one before. So that's one more kind of local investor that, okay, if they did a 4 million with Haven Hill, it's likely they'll do a few more of those. Every one of those is helpful to the industry. And we look at it that these $50,000 angel deals we do now, in two years, we'll probably do one to 2 million in these companies, the ones that are performing. And then in three to four years, someone else is going to do five to 10 million. So it's, it is a process and we're trying to build the pipeline from the start, but finance is, is a big obstacle. And then I think the, the other one is just, there's a lot of really strong government support for this sector. I have to say for mm-hmm. in the Buhari administration, probably, and it's not just because I'm in this sector, but probably, you know, the, if, if there's one sector that they've actually really done the right things for, it's the off-grid energy and the renewable energy sector. You know, if you think of four or five years ago, all we were talking about was grid, 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 grid. There was no other conversation. And now it's almost like the on-grid is almost secondary to the off-grid conversation. And off-grid, you know, the regulation is solid. You have people from India, Cambodia, East Africa talking about how Nigerian regulation is the cutting edge, is, is what they're learning from, you know, and, and there's all these government support programs. The, the Rural Electrification Agency does amazing work, very sort of atypical government agency for anywhere in the world and their responsiveness and their commitment to support. You have, you know, the, this recent sort of 5 million connection targets that the central bank put 
I think it's 180 billion naira behind. So it's it's a lot of support, oh. and that's positive. But there's some inconsistencies in that. At the same time, every single entrepreneur, every single shipment they bring in, whether it's you know the 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 raw materials needed to assemble solar panels here in a factory or the finished product, they just get endless wahala at the port. And it's this it's the typical shakedown, but it's also okay. You know, solar panels are supposed to be imported duty free, but then they say, oh. But this is a, this panel can generate electricity, so it should pay the same tariff as a generator, you know. Or a lithium-ion battery comes in, and then they say, "Oh, but this is like a car battery, so it should be." And it's like it's not a car battery, you know. On and on and on and on. And so these are these are sort of day-to-day struggles that that the entrepreneurs face that makes it difficult. In spite of the government support, there's still other arms of government that don't support, and and we need to find a way for there to be more sort of cohesion there. So I think those are the three big three big issues. The the final one, though, there is also an awareness problem. In Nigeria, we all grew up with a generator or the sound of a generator, and we know how they work, right? Like every every Nigerian knows about kilowatts and KVA and this and that and diesel and petrol, and they know how to put petrol or diesel into a generator. They know how to turn it on. They know, you know, all that. And so there's something about knowing how it works that makes it attractive, right? Plus, you know, we have a bit of a, an issue where it's a bit prestigious. The bigger the generator you have, the, the, the richer you probably are, right? So it's almost like, why would I go to solar? Then nobody can hear how big and important I am because they don't hear a loud generator in my compound. In fact, they may think that I've just actually become poor because I can't afford a generator anymore. When as a matter of fact, I have my, my roof is covered with solar panels and I'm using batteries and there's no sound. And I actually have a more sophisticated system than my rich neighbor. But, you know, we're mm-hmm. not there yet. And so what we need is we need, you know, it, it's growing fast. I mean, now you do see discussions around solar power, for example, on, on newspaper headlines periodically. And these are things that are, are becoming, you know, higher up on, on people's awareness. But it's still the, the massive Nigerians and the typical Nigerian still assume solar doesn't work because their experience with solar are failed government or donor projects. And their experience with generators is that, yes, they're messy and they're noisy, but at least they work and I, I know how they work. So that's mm-hmm. that's something that, that we we in the industry and everyone in the industry are, are working on. But we also have to be careful not to create so much awareness that suddenly 10 million Nigerians want a solar product in the next year and we don't have the companies at a scale that they can deliver that. So it's a bit of a chicken mm-hmm. and egg. And so we're trying to build the awareness as the industry is capable of, of serving serving the growing uh, demand. And you know, something very interesting that you kind of touched on and you mentioned at the beginning as well is the expectation of solar companies, especially in the off-grid space. They can't just be solar companies, as you mentioned. And I don't know if if this comparison works, but you mentioned that their parents were, were missionaries and it's very, it's very it's becoming increasingly important for them to be very integrated in the communities that they're serving and to create products around those services and really and really become a mainstay there. So that has been a very interesting uh, conversation. I've heard a few people give their takes about it, but do you think that expectation is fair on the long run on companies like that to not just offer their products and do well, but to do other things that strengthen the offerings to the communities and, and especially in the off space? So I'm curious about what your own um, take on the subject is. Yeah, you know, I mean, a typical mini-grid company is led by a group of engineers, Right. And for them, it's yeah. about it's about generating electrons and selling it to people via you know electricity wires and then and then smart meters and then create as easy a system and a transparent a system as possible for them to pay. And that's really what they think of. The, the typical mini grid developer didn't start thinking that okay, when I put this mini grid in this community, I actually like you're saying become an integral part of this community, even though I'm not from there and have no connection to them. I saw them as a market, and suddenly I'm actually the heart 
the heartbeat of that community. And that is something that I think there's a growing awareness of that now because I think the mini grid companies realize, wait, you know, my bringing power there has transformed this community. But if the community doesn't use the power I generated, I don't make any money. So we mm-hmm. have to actually work together. Plus, you know, I make more money the more power I generate and sell. And so these communities have been off grid without power for decades or forever. And so, you know, their power use is very low. The typical household in a place like that may only have two light bulbs and, and maybe a TV and a fan. They don't have any large appliances. The whole community may not have a single sort of large scale like agriculture machinery at all. They may not have any sort of large scale shops that have, you know, big fridges and all that because they've been dependent on little generators that, that people can afford and, and only afford for certain hours of the day. And now suddenly you have access to 24-7 power, but you don't actually have the appliances to drive the use. So the companies are actually now realizing, look, we need to do more to create that demand. And creating that demand means further integration into the community. You got to be part of, you know, the small business community there. You got to be part of the, you know, every, every community has probably a church and a mosque and, and a few other social infrastructure as well. You got to be integrated into that. You got to be integrated into the agriculture value chain of that community. You got to be integrated even into the transport infrastructure of that community, on and on and on. And so it's it's not something that, like I said, an engineer would typically think about. And so there's a real kind of rural development strategy around this that that needs to be brought into it. And and that almost you need to be aware of before you even start. Otherwise, you may, you know, it, it may become difficult because you now have put in this investment, you have the power generating, but you don't understand the community and what they really need and they don't understand you. And so it, it just sort of goes dead. Mm. That, that's actually very interesting to hear. And what about... F- from the take of um, how do you expect the sector to grow? Because I've heard conversations from different people as well. Recently, I had Jay on the podcast and was talking about how this small off-grid developers could uh, eventually need things like utility licenses and be recognized as a utility and serving a particular group. So do you think that that's the direction the space could grow into? And do you think it's going to be too much of a policy hurdle, especially in Nigeria, for that kind of thing to happen? And is that, is that something that will create problems in the future or in the context of growth for the off-grid space? So, you know, the on-grid sector in Nigeria is overregulated and, and, and the, the, you know, the fact that tariffs are set and all that without actually, you know, letting the companies that are involved in delivering the service it is an issue. And it is actually is part of why the, the, the on-grid sector is not doing very well. Obviously, the tariffs have recently been increased. So there's a little bit more, you know, liquidity now in the system. But, but what has worked in the off-grid is the fact that the few regulations there are are very enabling. But there aren't that many regulations and it's, it's quite open. And it, mm-hmm. I think the, the concern is that as off-grid grows and some of the companies get bigger and bigger, that's when the government may come in and say, okay, let's start imposing tariff limitations and, and who knows what else, you know, and, and that's, that's when we may start seeing the growth slow down because part of what's attractive is that, you know, it's, it's basically willing buyer, willing seller. If I'm willing to pay, you know, 300 naira kilowatt hour for a solar home system equivalent, then just it's it's a product on the market. Nobody asks me what I what I pay per kilowatt hour for a generator and di- run by diesel. So why why does it matter for a solar product, right? And so we're hoping. I mean, this is something that's ongoing with industry. There's engagement with the National Assembly right now. There's an updated electricity bill going through the National Assembly that the off grid renewable industry played a big role in developing to make sure that instead of it being more restricted, that it actually becomes sort of more open. So that right now, if you are generating less than a megawatt, you don't need a license. If you are distributing less than 100 kilowatts, you don't need a license. So that's fine. But what that means is every mini grid is therefore 99 kilowatts or below, even in a community that may <laughs> need 500 kilowatts, right? 
And so mm-hmm. you, you can't fill a 195,000 megawatt power gap 100 kilowatts at a time and ever get there. So our prayer on this is that the regulator gets even more hands off and says, look, okay, if, if you are distributing, let's say five megawatts or below, just let, let me know, let me be aware, but you don't need any permission from me. If you're generating, you know, 20 kilowatts or below, again, let me know, but you don't, you know, because I mean, 20 kilowatts, sorry, 20 megawatts isn't really that much power, you know, and, and five megawatts is really not that much power. And so, you know, to, to have to get a special license if you're distributing 101 kilowatts is a bit, is a bit ridiculous. But so, so we're hoping that the industry, that the regulator understands that. And, and so far, the regulator in, in off-grid has been very responsive to the industry, very connected. They listen and, and all that. And, and I think that's, that's really good. But, you know, in, in any country, when something is starting to, to work really well, you know, it's, it's typical for a government to look at where I can get something from it. But if you look at, let's say, the solar home system companies now, right? So Lumos is the largest. They now have, I think it's around 120,000 connections, 120,000 customers who are metered and paying, right? That's mm. probably a typical disco may not have more than half a million metered paying customers. They may not even have that many. So Lumos is already at, let's say, at around one third to half of what a typical disco has in terms of metered paying customers, right? So you can see that disruption is coming because Lumos is obviously growing fast. They could be at 500,000, a million connections soon, and then they'll be actually bigger than the discos in terms of number of paying customers, not necessarily power delivered. And then some of these mini grid companies, you know, as you get to having 50 to 100 mini, mini grids and you grow and grow and grow from there, I mean... You're starting to get into you know megawatts and megawatts and, and tens of thousands of customers, and it becomes disruptive. And and the discos in the meantime are actually losing customers. So you know this is this is going to be a bit of a balance here that we'll have to to manage here. But one of the regulations that's actually come in recently and, and is still being finalized is called the distribution franchise regulation. And what that does is it actually brings the on grid and the off grid together, and it allows distribution companies to say, look, this particular community, this particular marketplace, this particular industrial estate, we just don't have the capacity to serve them properly. So we will outsource that to a third party. We'll have an agreement with the third party with that community or that market and us. The third party will generate additional power on site, whether solar or gas, and then they'll use our distribution, our transmission and distribution infrastructure and pay us for that. But then they'll do the collections and all that. And and in the end, it means that this particular franchise area does get power that they need but it's not that it's not using power that we don't have to give and so so this way actually means that the on grid and the off grid is coming together in a very creative way that i think will actually be the game changer to really transform the industry those are very, very, very interesting developments. And I'm genuinely excited to see how the sector grows. And I'm sure that there'll be a lot of young Nigerians or young Africans listening to this that are thinking about getting into the renewable energy space and maybe starting their own companies. And they're saying, okay, how do I start? How do I have an idea, build a product and get to a place where you can get funded by someone like an all on or other impact investing or financial institutions? Uh, so. What advice do you have for people like that, especially people who are just in the early stages or just starting out? Yeah. So on, on one level, I say, bring it on with a with the massive energy access gap Nigeria has and then much of the rest of Africa has. There is a sort of an endless opportunity, right? And there's still opportunity for innovations and being different and bringing something new to the table. And so, so on, on one level, that's that's what I say is just bring it on. Let's let's you know, we need everybody in the fold. On the other side, it's really hard. You know, th- th- let me give you an example. So so the. The, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, have provided about half a billion dollars worth of funding through the Rural Electrification Agency that's basically 
grant subsidies for renewable energy companies as they're rolling out their products. So, so this was announced, and, and there was a sort of a launch event, and and the public was read was open to it was open to the public, and so there was you know I think it was it was I can't remember where it was in Abuja, but it was a big hall packed with people. And then as they started talking about it, they made it clear that, okay, you don't get the grant until after you've already deployed. So it's results-based. It's based on already, you know, deploying and making connections. The hall started to empty (laughs) because people realized, ah, this one is not, you know, because they were thinking, let me come in, put some company in place, get a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of grant money. And then whether I deliver or not doesn't matter. And and now they're saying, no, you actually have to deliver first and then you get the grant. So I think that, that it's telling that, look, this is a very difficult, very, very difficult industry. If you are trying to make quick money, do not get into the renewable energy space. If you want to create, you know, companies that are delivering lasting impact and that have the have the potential for long-term long-term growth but slow growth, then then get into it. So so only get into it if you have that kind of longer-term view. And and, and I think even those with a longer-term view, again, you know, I I, I am confident there's going to be a couple of solar or off-grid energy billionaires in Nigeria. But most of them are going to be companies that grow slowly. You get decent income, decent returns, and and your your sort of how do I say your reward is more the impact that you're creating. And so you have to have a different, a, a little bit of a different temperament if if you're to, to be willing to do that. That you're saying, look, I could go into a bank, I could go to an oil company, and I could make a lot more money a lot faster. But in this space, I know that every connection we make is changing somebody's life. And for many people, that is especially this new generation, the Generation Z. The Zoomers, as they call them, that is actually far more important now than, 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 than how much money you make. Well, for many of them. And, and I think that's actually very important. And it's, it's something that you need to, to keep in mind if you're going into this space. Dr. Boa, thank you so much for making the time for this. I really had a fantastic time speaking with you. And just before I let you go, something the audience might not know about you is you actually actually written a book that has actually nothing to do with energy, the history of football in Nigeria. So that's another one of your passions, I'm sure. Yes, it definitely is. And I think that's what, what, what makes it. So, you know, I love Nigeria and the two things that the biggest problem in Nigeria is power. And the thing that the massive Nigerians love the most is football. So I'm trying to address both. Thanks for listening to the Energy Talk podcast. You can find us on all podcast listening platforms. Just search for the Energy Talk. Send us an email to at energytalkpodcast at gmail.com.